Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. PV has allowed me to make a contribution that matters to me and I hope matters to other people. So the work that I've done is purely a function of seeing something that needs to be done and seeing nobody else doing it and just saying, I'm going to do it, darn it. This is Suncast. In every battle, there's a front line. On that front line are warriors whose courage and action shape the outcome of the battle. The world is currently engaged in a literal power struggle, a battle in global energy as it evolves from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Suncast is a conversation with solar warriors on the front lines, building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. We learn their secrets to personal and professional growth, market development, and industry insights. And now, join solar industry veteran, Latin America fanatic, and your host, Nico Johnson. Well, well, welcome back to episode 46 of Suncast. I'm your host, Nico Johnson, and I am so glad you're back with me again for another week of exciting and educational information. Maybe you can hear it in my voice, but I'm just back from an amazing time at Solar Power International 2017 in lovely Las Vegas, and I am exhausted. But I wanted to make sure we are staying on track with the next episode here as we continue to bring you actionable content focused on helping you grow as a solar leader and professional. And man, was I overwhelmed by the number of you who actually came up to me at SPI and confessed your listenership. I really genuinely appreciate it. Thank you so much to all of you who keep showing up. And for those of you who did, who had took the time out of your show schedule to say hello, to come to the events that we organized, and to mention that you are listening to and enjoying the show. I feed off of that energy, so thank you very much for that. And one final note on SPI, just a thank you to Abby Hopper and the folks at SIA and SIPA for putting on yet another stellar event. It's hard to fathom pulling together 28,000 like-minded people from all over the world into one place. And you guys just keep producing one of the absolute best environments available for networking and education in the solar industry. So my hat's off to you. Today, we'll be spending time with someone who is very acquainted with solar pioneers and their stories in this industry. My friend and fellow podcaster, Jeff Spies, spelled spies, pronounced Spies, has been in the solar industry for nearly exactly the same amount of time that I have. That's 11 years and counting. And I don't think that anybody has spent as much time as he has thinking about how to tell the story of the dawn of the solar PV industry and the vanguards who ushered it out of obscurity and into the mainstream. In fact, his solar pioneer parties are legendary. So stay tuned to hear how you can attend the third and final one this coming November. In today's episode, we get into detail about Jeff's journey into solar from his early days at AEE to now. What exactly are these solar pioneer parties he keeps talking about on LinkedIn and Facebook and why you should attend? Which contractor trade Jeff expects solar to most resemble as it continues to evolve, and his take on Hot or Not, books, lessons learned, and so much more. I hope that some of this resonates with you, and I'm queuing up more tactical episodes to keep you sharp, and I'd love to know what themes or areas of interest you're keen to learn most about. What are the problems or roadblocks that we can help get out of your way? Would you please 
reach out to me and let me know how I can help here on Suncast or even offline. I'd love to hear from you. And of course, if you have someone or something that you think should be on Suncast, you can shoot me an email, a LinkedIn message, or even pop over to the website and leave me a quick voicemail right from your phone. That website is www.mysuncast.com and the email is nico at mysuncast.com. This episode is brought to you in partnership with soulrates.com. That's S-O-L-R-A-T-E-S.com, the fast and free online platform for providing your commercial customers with a credible lease financing proposal. If you have projects over 100000 in value and you'd like to see how Soul Rates can help you quickly and easily deliver a financing proposal to your customers, please reach out to me directly for an invitation code to join the platform. All right. Thanks again for taking your time to be here with us. I hope you enjoy this week's episode of Suncast with Jeff Spees of Quickmount PV. Folks, today's guest has dedicated his career to making solar the leading form of electric power generation. If you've been in solar in the United States for more than a couple of years, especially in the residential sector, or if you've been to any of the numerous trade shows, you've no doubt come across Jeff Spees. His dynamic personality and presence draws folks in, not just to the trade show booth, but into engaging conversations. And I could go on and on about his intellect and accolades as an industry leader, an advocate, a servant, but I hope that today you'll be able to get a feeling for the person behind the persona. And you can always internet stalk him as I have on LinkedIn. Um, so, Jeff, really excited that you're on Suncast today, brother. Oh, it's good to be here, Nico. Yeah, man. Well, I've been looking forward to getting a chance to dive into some of these uh, meteor discussions with you. I don't think, I think you're, you've pointed to me to some of what you call the industry historians, but I kind of consider at this point you're becoming one yourself. So, uh, looking forward to the conversation. Well, uh, I, I guess I could say I'm a historian in a fairly narrowly defined spectrum of just uh, the documentary part of it. But uh, I'm, I'm happy that I've been in a position to be able to do this, although it wasn't something I set out to do, strangely enough. Yeah, and the, this that you're referring to, of course, we'll talk about a lot more, which is a documentary forthcoming. And you've uh, you've got the you've done the Solar Pioneer parties. But, you know, before we get into all of that, tell me a little bit about your first exposure or your foray into solar power. When did you decide uh, or how did you know that this is where you wanted to focus your career? Can you bring take me back to that moment? You know, I've thought a lot about that I, because I've been working on a documentary film about how the industry started. And I've asked most of the people we've interviewed, about 55 now, how they first came across photovoltaics or PV. And uh, and I've thought to myself, when did I first become aware of photovoltaics? And I have to admit, I remember distinctly the first time I ever saw a uh, a, a solar uh, electric power device. I don't even know if solar electric, but those radiometers, those things that look like a old incandescent light bulb that had a little three flag black and white device that would spin. That would have been probably in the, I'm going to guess when I was in the third grade. So that would have been about 1973 that I first saw that and it amazed me. I couldn't figure it out. It was like astonishing that you had this thing inside this sealed light bulb that was spinning and I couldn't figure out for the life of me what was causing it to spin. And, uh, but 
after that first experience, I have to say my awareness of photovoltaic technology is something that I just didn't really have in any significant way. I actually worked in the mid-80s when I was in college. In the solar industry, I was a, I was a telemarketer. I was one of those people that called folks while they were eating dinner and asked if they wanted to buy the Starpack solar energy system. And my, wow. my uh, real killer line was, how would you like to save money on your energy bill? And if they said no, my response was, you don't want to save money on your energy bill? <laughs> and uh, even though I was selling a solar thermal water heating system in the mid-80s, I had very limited awareness of photovoltaic technology. I probably had some general awareness through things like the news reports of the space program where you'd see those big solar panels powering satellites or the space station. But I, you know, so what happened for me was I worked uh, after I got out of college in the field of industrial automation. I started out in more traditional bearings and power transmission and AC and DC motors and drives and then control systems. And uh, for about 20 years, I worked in that field. And it wasn't, uh, there were aspects of it I really enjoyed, but it was a mature industry. It wasn't particularly fulfilling. And after, uh, I actually read an interesting book. I had been telling a friend of mine how I just wasn't particularly satisfied with my chosen career path. And he recommended that I read a book called What Color Is Your Parachute? And I read it and I was kind of, I, I felt a lot of it was corny. It had you do certain exercises, but there was a part of it that was incredibly powerful and valuable in my decision to make that transition into photovoltaics, which was they had you do an exercise where you identified those things that you liked and those things you didn't like. And then they had you, this is a quadrant. So you had, you know, your uh, upper left, upper right, lower left, lower right quadrants. So you identified what you were good at, what you were not good at, what you liked, what you didn't like. And they advocated that you focus your time and energy in your career on doing something you were good at and something you liked. And after I got done, what I came up with is that I enjoyed educating people on technical subjects. That was what I really at my core was good at. It's what I liked. And I had, by that point, developed a real keen interest in photovoltaic technology, but quite honestly, and this would have been in the early 2000s, I couldn't make heads or tails out of how it worked and how you would, you know, I guess the big question in my mind is, how many solar panels do I need on my house to power my house? That's the question all of us seem, seem to ask in the early days. So uh, I had been going through transition in my career where I had had a, the best paying job I've ever had in my life. Uh, but it wasn't a particularly fun job. And, uh, that came to an end and I was, you know, pursuing another opportunity working for a similar company in the same basic industrial automation industry. And, uh, I was very close to getting the job at the last minute it fell through and I was quite disappointed in my wife who had been listening to me express my dissatisfaction with my chosen career path had said for a couple of years, she said, well, what about solar? And, uh, up until that point, I kind of dismissed and said, yeah, it's interesting, but I don't think I can make a living at it. And so after I, that opportunity fell through, she hit me again with what about solar? And I responded by saying, well, I'm interested in it, but I don't know if I can make a living at it. So she encouraged me to go to, at that time, the biggest trade show was called Solar Power. How generic a name. It finally added the 
uh, the uh, suffix of international so that you could do a web search on it. But uh, so I, I signed up for Solar Power 2006, which was in San Jose, and took the full conference pass. It was not inexpensive, but it was what I felt would be the best way for me to really evaluate whether this industry was for real. And I went there and attended many of the training sessions, met Arnold Schwarzenegger. He had just uh, a short while before signed the California Solar Initiative into law, and he was celebrating it there at that trade show. And and uh, I, I met a lot of other folks that really became instrumental in my career in the solar industry, not the least of which was David Katz with Alternative Energy Engineering. But I didn't really know it was him at the time, because if you've ever met David, he he doesn't look like the powerhouse that he really is. He's kind of an understate. He's, he's a very distinctive looking individual. But when you first meet him, you would never guess that he is the giant of this industry that he truly is. So um, I, I, I came away from that with the probably the most substantial thing that I learned at Solar Power International is that the best training organization was Solar Energy International based in Colorado. So I signed up immediately after the trade show for their beginning and advanced PV training classes. And uh, a, a few months later, I took the beginning PV course down in uh, the Tucson area. And it was taught by a person who's become, you know, just a very dear friend of mine, Ed Eaton. Ed is uh, one of the most colorful characters in the solar industry. Uh, and uh, boy, he inspired me to no end. You just can't imagine. And I, I, I walked away from that training thinking, wow, this technology is awesome. I still didn't know how many solar panels I needed to power my house, but uh, I, I loved everything I was learning about PV technology. To me, there was something magical about this black piece of glass that sits in the sun and generates electricity. So I, uh, a few months later, went, and, and, and incidentally, uh, at the solar power trade show in San Jose in 2006, I had met the VP of sales, Jeff Haas, who uh, I started to talk to very seriously about a possible job, but I told him, I said, listen, I, I, I'd be very interested in talking to you about a job, but I don't really feel that I'm prepared to work in the solar industry until I'm better educated. I need to understand this if I feel comfortable, if I'm going to feel comfortable selling this technology to others. So uh, signed up for the beginning PV class, loved it. And I went in May of 2007 to the advanced PV class in Carbondale, Colorado at SEI's main location at that time. And it was, it was certainly more challenging than the beginning PV class I absorbed immediately upon it being taught to me. The advanced PV class, I had to go back every night after my class and study. <laughs> and, uh, but I, I, was digging it big time. I mean, I just was really enthralled by this technology. There was something that just grabbed me and it didn't let go. So after that class was done, I uh, felt comfortable that I was prepared to find a real job in the industry, contacted Jeff Haas and I said, hey, I've just completed my advanced PV training with SEI and I feel like I'm ready to embark upon a serious job search in the industry. So he flew me up to Actually, it was funny because they're located in the town of Redway, California, and there's so many towns in California that start with red. There's Redwood City and red this, red that. So I just assumed incorrectly because this was before the days of Google Maps that uh, this was in the San Francisco Bay Area. So I got him on the phone. And I said, uh, I said, uh, where is Redway anyway? And he says, oh, it's about four hours north of San Francisco. 
in Humboldt County. And a little light in the back of my head went off. I was like, I remember hearing about Humboldt County in college. And, uh, of course, Humboldt County was famous for only one thing. And uh, that was marijuana. Well, and uh, I went up there uh, for my interview, and it was incredible. It was, don't get me wrong, at the time, AEE Solar, which had started years before as Alternative Energy Engineering, uh, was from the outside, nothing special to look at. It was, you know, kind of a industrial looking building in a sleepy kind of a, well, I'm sure a few years earlier it had been mainly a dirt road town. Uh, but there was something there that just really intrigued me and the people probably more than anything else. And when I met David Katz finally and realized who he was, uh, it was the greatest experience of my life. He was my mentor and he inspired me to know and to do the work that I do today. And it's been just a wonderful experience working in the PV industry. I feel blessed to have, uh, run across David and AEE solar and, uh, can't say enough good about that experience. Well, what an amazing, uh, foray into the industry coming through, uh, you know, more than a decade ago. And I identify with that story in a lot of ways. 2006, as I may have shared with you before, is the year that uh, was the first SPI I went to. And, you know, here we are. This episode won't come out until certainly after SPI, but we're the week before SPI. And this is, you know, one of the biggest ever. And, uh, or maybe sprint, maybe scaled down this year. But here we are getting ready to go into another year where folks still are continually getting into this industry and and one of the doorways into the industry are these industry conferences. Um, I you know just remarking on uh, SEI uh, Solar Energy International. They have been uh, they've been a, I've developed some friendships there. And while I haven't trained there, they continually are remarked about in the industry as the sort of the gold standard, if you will, for training. And it just blows my mind the number of not just leaders in the industry but company founders who have come out of that organization at some point. I'd love to uh, bring on the founder of SEI and just talk a, a more about his vision for, you know, basically helping, he, he helped create an industry in, in many ways. Uh, and I know that you know him well, but I, I, I wanted to hear a little along the lines of creating an industry. You know, what recently brought us back into conversation is this mutual admiration for those giants on whose shoulders we stand, right? Mm. These guys have been the founders of our industry. Could you tell me a little bit about the the spark of your now infamous solar pioneer parties and how they've opened up a whole new element to your pro professional work? Well, uh, just to kind of give a little bit of overview as to how this solar pioneer party developed it, you know, again, I, I kind of fell into this. Uh, when I started working for AEE Solar, realized at the time in 2007 when I started, the industry was, well, I, I did the numbers. In 2006, the, the amount of megawatts installed of PV in the United States was less than 1 140th of what was installed in 2016. So the industry grew over a period of 10 years from the time I first started into it by a factor of 140 times. So the industry was small by comparison. And it was really strange at that time, the trade shows were, you know, it was virtually everybody in the industry seemed to be there because the industry was so small by comparison. And, uh, and it was a very different industry. The tie-dye and ponytails dominated the trade shows. You saw very few suits and ties. 
Uh, but you did see a few because, of course, the uh, German uh, SMA, which was a suit and tie company, had already established itself firmly by that point. Uh, so it was um, it was a different world and it was a fun world. I mean, it was it was uh, still a significant percentage of the business that we did at AE Solar when I joined. Uh, was off-grid, uh, and we based that upon the amount of solar panels we sold or solar modules versus the charge controllers. And when we did the math, we figured at that stage about 30% of our business was off-grid. But grid tie, obviously, was two-thirds of our business, so it had grown dramatically over the course of the previous six or seven years. Grid tie was pretty much a uh, an oddity, I think, is the proper terminology that one would apply to it in the late 90s. And it started to become a real thing around 2000 when some of the incentive programs in California really injected a lot of money into the industry. So the industry was already growing fast, but it didn't come close to the kind of growth that we saw in 2009, 2010. Then the industry just exploded. But I worked at, during the latter part of the 2000s in an industry where there was a lot of interest, but it wasn't quite the massive growth that we ended up seeing a few years later. So it was fun. It was uh, really gratifying. And the interesting thing is, even though you competed against uh, a lot of these companies, there were friendships, close friendships with direct competitors. You didn't feel competitive animosity towards each other. You really felt supportive because we felt we were competing against fossil fuels and nuclear power. And in fact, we were. So um, the the dynamic of the industry in those early years that I worked in it was very different than than today, uh, even though we still represent, I'm not sure what, 2% of the electric power generated in the U.S. today? It's pretty modest. It's very modest. So, but but uh, at that time, we were in the 0.0-something percentage. It was very small. So uh, we all felt a kinship with, with our competitors that we were in this together. And there was a tremendous spirit of cooperation amongst the different companies in the industry. We supported one another. Uh, and, it's, and it's grown. It's really been gratifying to see the growth. I dedicated my career my life to helping make photovoltaics the primary source of electric power generation. We're not anywhere close to that yet, but we're certainly positioned to, we, I think the work we've done over the past 10 years has made great strides to achieving my life goal. Yeah. I was just pulling up the IEA, the EIA stats here from 2016 and solar is still only about a half a percent. So the huge amount that we've deployed um, you know, with wind, just be wind is about two percent. Uh, we've still moved the needle uh, less than a percentage point in total in total consumption of solar energy as as a component of U.S. energy. But we're we're getting there. We're getting there. We certainly have done. Uh, we've had, we've come a, a long way, as you said, 140x growth. So I recall back in the day, I was buying from AEE, and certainly a huge portion of your business was off grid. Uh, you know what what amazes me is how many of the folks that sort of were were, were not just working at AEE but working uh, with AEE. Uh, we mentioned uh, David Caspian, the founder, Johnny Weiss from SEI. Uh, a lot of folks who not just from Humboldt but California in general and the home power market in in essence created uh, the the grid tie, if you will, created the grid tie market as we now know it back in the in the 80s and 90s. So you started the solar pioneer parties as a way to get those folks back together because many of them had either retired or, or moved on 
uh, to other things. Is that correct? Well, yeah, what had happened was uh, as the industry grew so quickly, what I noticed, and I'm sure you probably did too, is that those giants of the industry that we all knew and respected and admired in our early years, your, your, my early years in the PV industry, uh, they were kind of forgotten. They were just, and forgotten is maybe the wrong term. The people coming into the industry because it was growing so quickly had little awareness of how this technology got established and who those people were that really made this industry into what it was. So, uh, I, after I left AEE solar in 2010, uh, and I really missed the folks I worked with because they were really the greatest friends I've ever made in my entire life. And it wasn't just the people at AEE Solar. It was our customers. It was our competitors. It was that extended family of folks in the industry. And I missed the trade shows as they used to be in those early years because they were special events. They felt like I've called them family reunions but the only difference with a typical family reunion is you didn't have that angst and strife of a typical family reunion. People really liked each other. And I missed that camaraderie. So I had been, since I left AE in 2010, uh, I had uh, spoken with a lot of my coworkers and said, we should have a reunion party. It would be fun to get us all back together again in one place. And for about five years, I had talked with my old coworkers about the possibility of a reunion party. And keep in mind, when I worked there, I was the director of training and trade shows. I organized all of our training events. I, uh, I actually built our trade show booths in those early years with my own tools and my own hands. So I came up with the idea to have what we called the Solar Pioneer Party, which we invited the extended family of AEE Solar to the event. We had about 150 people show, but to my surprise, it wasn't just that the folks that work for AE and our customers, but it was really quite gratifying to see that a significant number of those people that were substantial in helping develop the industry into what it's become today showed up, including the the great, I would call him Richard Perez, founder of Home Power Magazine. And Richard had not been to an industry event in 10 years. His wife had been ill and uh, and she had passed away a couple of years prior, unfortunately. And, and he had kind of adopted somewhat of a reclusive lifestyle at his homestead in Southern Oregon. But this event uh, brought him out because he realized the the gravity of the situation. Here we have all these people that were ranging in age from about 65 to 85 years old that were instrumental in the development and the foundation of the PV industry getting together what we thought was one last time. And uh, the attendance was, was significant. It was the most magical experience of my career. Hard to describe, hard to put into words, the, the feeling of having so many intelligent, brilliant luminaries of the industry in one place at one time. The weather was perfect. The, we even had rain, but it was great because it had, we had a rainbow over the party, during the party. It was hard to describe the feeling. It was, again, like magic in the air. And during that party, uh, I realized that as the party was taking shape and I started to find out who was going to be coming, I realized, gee, I don't think that there's ever going to be this kind of a gathering of these industry founders again. So I started shopping around for somebody to 
come there and do interviews. I talked to Stephen Lacey, who, of course, you know, Stephen is uh, uh, the journalist I respect most in PV industry, but his career was red hot and he had his plate full. And I spoke with a number of other folks saying, please come there with a camera, interview these people. They're, you know, you're, you're never going to get them together like this again. And I, I couldn't find anybody to do it to my uh, sad reality. So I, I ended up twisting the arm of my good buddy, Jason Vetterly, who is our staff videographer at Quick Mount PV. Jason came up and all day, Jason and uh, another volunteer, Kristen Huster-Young, set up shop in a far side of the party and interviewed probably about 15 different pioneers of the industry. And I was really excited thinking, oh, this is going to be wonderful, all these wonderful stories. And we're finally capturing it. We can put this out there for everybody to know how this industry started. So uh, after the party was done, I had a chance to look at the footage and, and I was really excited at first. And, and as I started watching it, the stories were awesome. They really were. Unfortunately, the setting was all wrong because we were telling the story about how the photovoltaic industry started at night at a party. And I thought, you can't tell the story of how the PV industry started at night at a party. That's like the wrong setting. And after that party, Uh, I spoke with Jason and said, man, we really need to travel to these locations where these people came from and interview them at the site of where their businesses started to tell the true story about how the PV industry started. So it developed into what's become a documentary film that we've been now uh, almost two years in the production of. And we'll be debuting the documentary at the third and final Solar Pioneer Party, which I never thought there would be a second Solar Pioneer Party. And the only reason there was a second Solar Pioneer Party is because at the first Solar Pioneer Party, when we were trying to get everybody gathered for a group photo, we had uh, we, we had the party at a place called uh, Bryceland at the beginning school. And we were up on this deck with everybody down in field about 20 or 30 feet down below us. And we're trying to get everybody gathered for the photo saying, come on folks getting closer and and they all started cheering and saying let's do this again next year and i was looking around going what are you talking about next year this is it this is the party (laughs) and as it happened they kind of uh, forced my hand into doing the event again a second time in grass valley so what we did is we thought okay we're gonna make this documentary film we started running around the country interviewing uh, now it's 55 people i think we've interviewed and we had hoped to show this documentary film. That was all of it. we really planned was we would film it. We would show it at the second Solar Pioneer Party. But as we were producing it, we realized there's no way we can finish this project for the second Solar Pioneer Party. So that prompted me to conduct a third and final Solar Pioneer Party, which we will be uh, hosting in Mendocino County in November where we will be debuting the final documentary film project, which is going to come in about an hour and 45 minutes. And we tell the, the, the full story of how this technology was first discovered in the 1800s. Realize that the first rooftop PV system was installed in Manhattan, New York in 1884 by Charles Fritz. And, uh, and then, of course, the technology more or less stagnated until the development of the Bell solar battery that used silicon solar cells. That was the major breakthrough in the early 50s. And within uh, four short years, you had the technology powering satellites in outer space. And, and uh, so we, we follow the development of the technology from the 1950s through the space program to what we term terrestrial PV, which we're 
photovoltaics that were used to power applications on Earth that started in earnest in the early 1970s. But it wasn't until the late 70s when the home power market started to realize that these solar modules were becoming PV modules were becoming cost-effective enough to buy and power their homes. And that's where I pegged the start of the modern photovoltaic industry is the very late 70s, very early 80s, when a number of companies popped up starting to sell solar panels to folks that lived in remote areas to power their homes to generate their electricity. Very, very interesting. Well, I, for one, am thankful that there's going to be a third. I am very hopeful that I'll be able to make it. And with any luck, maybe even Stephen will be able to make it out this time. It's an invite-only event, and which we've discussed offline. Do you want to talk a little bit about how folks could find out more about it? I know they can go to solarpioneerparty.com, and I'll be linking not just to that, but also to the Facebook group for those who are interested. But perhaps you could give a little more detail. Uh, I can invite folks because I've been invited. Is that how it works? Yeah, it's you know when we say invitation only, it's uh, kind of a uh, it's a very broad term, meaning uh, I've invited everybody I know. And of course, I can only invite people I know because that's how life works. You can only you only know who you know. But I've empowered anybody who's been invited to invite anybody they feel is willing to come to this event with the right mentality to really pay tribute to those pioneers of the industry, many of whom will be in attendance. Last year, we were privileged to have the full lineup, in my opinion, of that first generation of businesses, uh, business owners, business founders that were the big names in selling solar PV modules to the home power crowd. Uh, and we had them all on stage at the same time. We had 14 of the most recognized names uh, who, you know, who really started the industry. It was uh, an incredible experience so that I anticipate that we'll have most of those same people coming back again this year. Sadly, Richard Perez, who came to the first Solar Pioneer Party, uh, didn't make it to the second Solar Pioneer Party. He sadly passed away just a, a couple months after at his homestead in Southern Oregon. And uh, I, I think that several of us had an appreciation that was a possibility. Richard was, you know, in his 70s, he was in failing health. and uh, But it really, uh, I think, uh, demonstrated the reason why we elected to push forward so aggressively to document the start of the industry because these folks are at that age where we recognize they won't be either around for too many more years or maybe not in a position to be easily interviewed. So uh, uh, it's been two really grueling years, but satisfying, gratifying years of work to travel the country to interview these folks. And we feel that our story is going to be of great interest to folks. In fact, audiences that have already seen it have responded really in, a, in an amazing way to the point where I've never had anybody in my life tell me that anything I did had inspired them. And I've had total strangers who saw this 20-minute uh, teaser clip tell me that watching that inspired them. And I am quite honestly just very pleased to hear that anything I've ever done in my life has inspired anybody. <laughs> I think we all aspire to be uh, inspiring, and we're doing work that uh, aims to inspire others around us. So I congratulate you on that, and I look forward to uh, seeing not just the teaser, but with any luck, being at the Solar Pioneer Party. As I mentioned before, you can get more detail at solarpioneerparty.com. 
com and there's actually i'm looking at it now a registration button up until september 30th which should still be uh, a few days after this is posted actually it's the registration will go right up to the event uh, itself unless we fill it up then we'll close it down we're we're able to accommodate i think the maximum capacity for being able to see the film is 400 people so that's kind of the total that we would allow to. But if folks are interested, all they have to do is reach out to you, reach out to me to get the password to register. And it's, or anybody who's been invited would be eligible to provide uh, anybody else that they want to see come with the password to be able to register. So it's not, I don't know if I would call it an exclusive event. We just want to make certain that whoever does come recognizes that the event itself isn't just uh, a big party to come and drink. And, you know, it's it's really the objective is to recognize these individuals who help create this wonderful industry, this technology that has allowed us to have a career, but even more importantly, is helping change the face of electric power generation for the better, in my opinion. Well, we're going to move on to a section I call hot or not. And I'll name a specific market or topic, and you spend about 30 or 60 seconds on whether or not you think it's hot, not, and why. And we're going to start with distributed storage. By that, I mean storage for either residential or C&I level, used for grid stabilization, demand response, et cetera. Hot or not? Well, it's clearly hot and going to be getting much hotter in the coming years. Uh, interestingly enough, when PV started, it was exclusively battery connected. There was no such thing as grid tie for decades after the silicon solar cells started to be used. So, um, uh, but batteries now are becoming an enabling technology for PV to continue its growth trend. In fact, not only are they enabling, they're critically necessary for us to even be able to expand further penetration into the grid because uh, too much PV, uh, just uh, I guess the best way of saying it, and GTM has really covered this well, as has Stephen Lacey in his podcast, uh, The Energy Gang, that every additional megawatt of PV that goes online has less value, the power that comes from it, than the megawatts that came prior. We need energy storage to be able to continue growing PV industry. Hmm. Do you have a, a thought on, uh, on what type of storage technology or where we see the storage industry trending? Well, clearly lithium batteries are the, the, the hot technology, so to speak. Lead acid has been the dominant battery storage technology for the past several decades. Uh, but in the last several years, we've seen the costs of lithium technology decline enough that it's becoming practical for many applications. A lot of, uh, residential and non-residential applications now can cost effectively use lithium technology. Although in comparison for the kilowatt hour cost for lithium, it's still more expensive than lead acid. However, it doesn't have some of the very limita limiting factors that lead acid has. The biggest challenge of lead acid is it's heavy, it's big, and if you discharge the lead acid batteries too much, you dramatically shorten their life or possibly kill them. Lithium has the benefit of being able to be discharged to zero and come back to life without major problems. Yeah, and, and discharged quickly as well. Yeah, yeah, discharged quickly. Another technology that I've got my eye on that's quite interesting is is uh, flow batteries. The most common are called vanadium redox flow batteries that may very well be more practical from a cost standpoint for very large 
energy storage applications. So that's a technology that's intriguing to me. But it seems that for the next 10 years or so, lithium is going to be the hot technology. Yeah, I, I kind of agree. Well, along that line, hot or not utility scale solar, and we'll consider utility scale above 20 megawatts for the purpose of the conversation. Ooh, that's an interesting question. We've got a pending trade case that could double the price of solar panels and make uh, utility scale solar not hot or, you know, a lot less hot than it's been. Uh, but uh, the, uh, there's no doubt in my mind internationally that utility scale solar is super hot and is going to continue to be super hot. What we're finding is when you break it down, a kilowatt hour that comes from a solar system is less expensive, even without any subsidies in the overall scheme of things compared to fossil fuels or especially to nuclear. Yeah, we're already seeing uh, first in Chile, then in uh, the Middle East and now in Mexico, where solar power is being delivered at or below uh, current grid parity. So it's uh, awesome, yeah, isn't it, it? Yeah, absolutely. And that's without the need for storage to, to make it so. Um, so it's funny, uh, you know, we kind of a lot of times get siloed in thinking, well, utility scale solar in the context of the United States, which has had a huge boom. Uh, but the reality is utility scale solar in the rest of the world, Latin America, uh, where a lot of my listeners come from in particular, is still uh, is still in the growth phase. It's still very much in, in the boom phase. So. Uh, I kind of agree with you there. Well, let's look at uh, not just in the U.S., but more broadly, what do you think, hot or not, the notion of a a national or even international kind of installation or finance company, a la Vivint, SolarCity, even Sun Edison, dare I mention the name? Well, I I guess that's one where I would have a question mark, uh, in large part because when you have third-party ownership, you're inserting an additional a layer of profit that's needed to make it work viably. And uh, that certainly was hot for a number of years here in the United States, although in the last uh, couple of years we've seen third-party ownership uh, lose some of its steam uh, as people have realized that uh, it's, it's a bit more difficult to make these opportunities pencil when you've got a third party owning the system. What we've seen, at least in the residential sector, is a a, a greater move towards ownership where the homeowner or in in the world of uh, uh, non-residential, the business owner will outright buy the PV system as an investment opportunity because the cost per kilowatt hour over that system life will be less than they would pay for grid power. So it's difficult for me to say if third-party ownership is going to be hot in the coming years. My sense is that as people have more confidence that this technology really will deliver for decades, that uh, that there's less of a desire for a third party to own it and people are willing to take out a, a regular loan to make the purchase and feel confident that that system will deliver the financial uh, performance that that customer hopes to have over the course of the 10 or 20 years or 30 years or whatever the case may be. I have a feeling we'll come back to that point specifically in in an upcoming question that I want to ask you. So we'll put a pin in that. And I'll I'll ask as a a follow-on question for hot or not, what about software? In particular, software as a service, the startups that are currently focused on the solar space, is that hot or not? Boy, that's a that's 
that's a little harder for me to answer. What I would say is that there's yeah, there's no doubt in my mind that there will be software that is going to be hot. But what I've found is the larger solar companies, for uh, whatever reasons, have opted to develop their own proprietary software for their own customized needs. We do have system design software and proposal generation software, certainly that is generic and can be used by a lot of companies. Uh, and, and it's really, uh, I think for especially smaller companies, helpful to have these resources available. But uh, my observation at least is when you get into the larger installation companies, the larger leasing companies, for, for a variety of reasons, they've opted for internally designed software that's customized to their specific business model. Uh, how about a, a hot button I know uh, is particular to you. Uh, what about the U.S. renewable policy in the Trump era, hot or not? Uh, <laughs> well, uh, I think we're going to, that's to be determined. The rhetoric that we've heard in the past year from uh, the current administration, people would perceive as probably not being terribly pro-solar. Um, but the reality is that many of the businesses, if not most of them tend to be owned by individuals that are identified probably more as Republican. The, uh, interestingly, when you look at the solar installations residentially in the state of California, that they're heavily weighted towards Republican districts, uh, the central Valley, which is, uh, a red zone, so to speak is, is where you find the most productive, solar markets. And uh, here in the Arizona area, everybody realizes Arizona is a strongly Republican state and solar has been very popular with folks that identify as Republicans. So the hope I think we have is that the Republicans that are supporting the solar industry will be able to influence the the uh, the current Republican administration to be supportive of solar policy. Very interesting. I tend to agree with you. I think we'll get. Uh, there's no point in going into the 201 case at this point. No, no. Let's let's keep our fingers crossed that uh, we can dodge that bullet. Uh, the the Section 201 trade case where Suniva has uh, accused all imported panels of uh, hurting or or injuring the U.S. solar panel manufacturing sector is a serious threat that potentially could double or more the cost of a solar panel, which would be incredibly harmful to the utility scale solar sector. It would increase the cost of residential solar an approximate 10 to 15 percent, which may not sound like a lot to some folks, but I think everybody realizes in, this, in the PV industry that we're competing against utility power. And in many areas, if you increase the cost of a solar installation by 10 or 15 percent, consumers are less likely to buy. So my personal desire is to uh, see the industry proceed forward without additional tariffs on imported solar panels. Uh, you know, a lot, few people realize that uh, the U.S. solar industry currently employs, I think, about a quarter million people. 38,000, an estimated 38,000 work in the manufacturing sector, including the company I work for, Quick Mount PV. And uh, uh, probably about less than a thousand people work in the solar panel manufacturing sector in the U.S. today. So we've got 38,000 manufacturing jobs with less than a thousand being in solar panel manufacturing. I would say at its height, the most the most 
the people that ever worked in solar panel manufacturing in the U.S. is probably about 2,000 people. So it's a very small number. And I question the logic of imposing tariffs to protect uh, 2,000 jobs when you got 38,000 manufacturing jobs that work in the field of racking and mounting systems and wire management and inverters and all of the other products that relate to solar. Solar panels are only one part of the equation, an important part, admittedly. But uh, I, I just feel that uh, putting another tariff on the U.S. PV industry is not helpful in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, I completely concur with you there. But Jeff, you mentioned back in uh, a previous question that you, uh, well, through your answer about what colors your parachute, you decided that what you love is educating folks on technical subjects and technical topics. When you went to AEE, that was a big part of your job. You were head of uh, training and the head of trade show, uh, both of which are highly educational to the public. And a lot of what you do in your current role is education, predominantly interfacing with the installers interfacing with the residential and the commercial sector of the market. With that context, help me understand what you see as the primary hurdles for the, that, that scale of company, resi and commercial installers currently in the United States today. Well, overwhelmingly, and let's put aside the trade case for the moment, the number one challenge for distributed generation or consumer-owned solar, I think that's probably the more appropriate way to phrase the market that I focus on. Uh, not utility scale, but homes and businesses that own their own solar system. Uh, the biggest challenge that I see is utility rate structures. Obviously, the utility industry views a homeowner or a business owner generating his own kilowatt hours as competition fundamentally, and they are changing their rate structures to make the investment in solar less attractive. We've seen that happen in places like where I live. My utility in, in uh, the Phoenix area is called Salt River Project, or SRP. Uh, they had a robust rooftop solar market until they imposed a demand charge about three years ago, and it caused an over 90% reduction in the installation of rooftop solar. So utility rate structures by far are the most significant issue that are uh, causing challenges for the continued growth of the solar industry. And, uh, you know, we've heard on, you know, things like the Energy Gang podcast, which I listen to regularly and really like, uh, the, the, uh, we, we hear about um, uh, the evolution, I guess you would say, of how the utilities view solar and this theory that the utilities have to change their business model to, sur to survive and su succeed in the coming years. Well, in a hundred-year-old industry that's been operating pretty much the same way that they did a hundred years ago doesn't change their business model easily. They, they, in essence, I feel it's more likely that utilities will fail before they will change. So I, I'm hopeful that we'll see enlightened uh, individuals within the utility sector understand that generation probably ought not be their business. They should manage the distribution system. All those wires that crisscross our cities and towns really should be their business, and they should be less concerned about uh, competing with folks that are installing rooftop PV systems on the generation side 
and have a robust distribution system, all those wires that carry power from where it's generated to where it's used, and whether that's on somebody's rooftop or a power plant out in the desert, they, they should focus on that side of the business. That's my hope is that in time, the utility companies will realize that, that generation should be left to those that are most cost effective at generating the power, and they should manage the distribution system. So this whole topic of net metering has been a real hot button over the past couple of years where uh, where net metering policies have changed. We're, we no longer, in fact, have traditional net metering in California. We have what's called net metering 2.0, which is not net metering. You no longer get full retail value for that excess kilowatt hour that you put back on the grid. You get a reduced value, and it can vary dramatically based on the time of use rates and the, the different fees that are applied or extracted. So it's become much more complex. And in my opinion, it's not the reduced investment opportunity that's created by these utility rate structures. It's the complexity of how these rate structures work to try to understand what your investment opportunity is. That's really the obstacle. So what I would say to solar installation companies that are out there trying to sell solar, in my opinion, the most important thing that you can do is re-educate your sales force as to how you explain the investment opportunity to a prospective customer. That, to me, is critical for us to continue seeing residential and commercial solar grow in the U.S., is there an analog or an example from other industries that we could learn from or, or something that you think is a great example that one might look to as how to how to potentially grow their business? I have tried to think of an analogy for our industry. It's so strange because what I feel is unique, at least from my perspective about the PV industry for the consumer-owned solar side, is how many industries like ours exist where you're fundamentally reliant on your competition for your very existence. We rely on the utility grid and the utility companies to be able to have our grid tie PV work at all. And it's a very odd relationship where you ha are reliant upon your competition, in quotes, uh, for your technology to even work. So I can't think of a good analogy of another industry where you're fundamentally reliant upon your competition for your ability to exist. There probably are other industries like that, but I, I just can't think of a good analogy. Interesting. Well, well I'm, I'm going to make an aside here uh, for editing out, but in our previous, I'm looking through my notes in our previous conversation, you mentioned uh, your view on the future of solar looking a lot like HVAC and that affiliations with large national brands like Train and Carrier and Ream are things that would be that you see as an eventual sort of an eventuality of our industry. Uh, I don't know if that influ influences or informs. I was kind of wondering if there's a way to pull that back in. Yeah, uh, yeah we could talk about it. Uh, well, I'll start by saying this. I see the, especially the residential solar and, and probably commercial solar industries evolving. Uh, we had in the residential sector a very strange dynamic where one company for a period of time uh, installed 30% of all residential solar. Uh, and they have declined in the last year or so from that number fairly noticeably. But what I envision the future of residential solar and probably commercial solar looking like is like the HVAC industry where you'll have these very large brand names like Train or Carrier or Ream 
and uh, and you'll have this network of small mom and pop installers that will be affiliated with these large national brands who will provide the solar panels and the and the racking systems and the inverters, and then you'll have these uh, mom and pop solar installation companies that may offer solar only as one of several services. An electrical contractor may wire a house, may install a solar system, may, you know, do uh, the wiring of the, the pool pump on your swimming pool. They offer a number of different services. So I envision the future of residential solar particularly looking very much like the HVAC industry looks today. Well, as those folks, you know, in Solar City, Sungevity, a number of co- companies that are closing their doors now, are as those folks are re-emerging in the marketplace, starting their own solar companies, be it installation uh, or, or some ancillary service. Where do you see uh, typical opportunities for uh, training to help those companies improve? Where do we see weaknesses right now? Well, training's changed considerably since I got into the industry. The norm when I started was that somebody would take a class, usually a beginning PV class, 40 hours through an organization like Solar Energy International. And then, of course, dozens of other training organizations popped up in a very short period of time. Uh, But today, what I find is most companies that get started in solar tend to uh, learn in, in a diversity of ways that weren't available 10 years ago. There, there's folks that will go to manufacturer trainings, inverter training workshops. Uh, uh, they will do some online training programs potentially, or just kind of browse the internet and learn and sometimes learn on the job. In fact, I would venture to say the average worker in solar today doesn't take a formalized training course in any way, shape, or form. They start working for a contractor, and they have a fellow who's the supervisor of the crew who shows them step-by-step the way they do it. And then maybe they go to a trade show or two and possibly take some online training. But uh, it's the the space of solar chain training looks very different today than it did ten years ago, and uh, and and I, in many respects, I think there's there's good and bad that comes with that. The good is there's a lot more quality training resources available today that were not available ten years ago. I got to tell you, when I started researching PV, I couldn't make heads or tails of what I read on the internet. My first project that I personally tackled was trying to figure out how to do wire sizing for a trolling motor that I was putting on my canoe and, and I en- ended up solar powering that in, in time. But uh, I it was really a struggle for me to decipher the heads and tails of PV. And that's the reason I went to the trade show and the reason I took my training with Solar Energy International. And finally, it made sense to me after that formalized training. Today, you can literally learn how to design and install a PV system if you can find the quality training resources online. So that's that's a good thing. The downside is that uh, differentiating from quality training and less than quality training is hard. And so what I would encourage anybody that's interested in getting into the industry is talk to established people in the industry and get their advice on what quality training they feel might exist. There's no doubt in my mind that Solar Energy International still establishes the high watermark for what a solar training organization ought to be. There's a few other organizations out there that I strongly endorse, including the Midwest Renewable Energy Association up in Wisconsin, who does a wonderful job educating people on system design and installation. Uh, but but definitely do some research prior to plunking down your hard-earned dollars on a solar training course. Sage advice. 
Speaking of sage advice, Jeff, what are some key lessons or takeaways from the most important mentors that you've had in your career? Well, I would say that the most important mentor I've had in my career is David Katz. And uh, what I've learned from David isn't so much by him saying, hey, this is the secret to my success. It's really just watching the way that he works and how people around him respond. And David is, you know, in my estimation, a genius. But he's also one of the most interesting, likable people you've ever met in your life. And uh, what I found about working with David is that uh, the time I've spent with him, and I love hanging out with David, it's really just a, a pleasure, is that uh, he makes work feel like fun. <laughs> and to me, that's probably the thing that I've learned most, most from those people that I consider mentors is that when you do something for a living that you enjoy, it's not work. It's a living, but it's not work. It's, it's, it's something you enjoy. I used to, uh, whenever I'd go up to Redway and, and uh, be around David, we'd be working, but it always felt like just hanging out with a good buddy doing fun projects. And uh, to me, that's how everybody should try to approach work is, is do something you enjoy, really be enthused about it. And, uh, it's, it's a wonderful way to make a living when you don't feel like you're working, you feel like you're doing something you would do, even if it, even if you weren't getting paid for it. So I, I used to tell David, uh, when I would go up to Redway to work, I would say, you know, I shouldn't probably tell you this, but I would come up to a place like this for vacation and pay for the privilege. It's really just a lot of fun to be up here and to be doing this work. It's so, uh, I, I, I know everybody doesn't have the luxury of enjoying their job the way that I've been able to do that. But, uh, I would say the secret to my success is that I, I really love the work that I do. I love the people that I work with and the people that I interact with. And, uh, it's, it's just wonderful when you can make a living doing something that you truly love. Yeah, and it's an age-old adage. I don't think it loses polish having having been uh, brought back uh, in this conversation. I wonder, uh, you do love the solar market, and it's clear in not just your work, but your uh, your extracurricular work and your attitude. What got, what's got you most excited about the solar market in terms of growth in the U.S., perhaps internationally, but what's next on the radar for you? Well, uh, I have to say with the energy that I've dumped into the Solar Pioneer parties and now the documentary film, which will be debuting in just a couple months, uh, that's that's my horizon. That's what I've been focused on. But what's got me most excited, I guess, beyond that is the prospect that energy storage will help facilitate future growth of PV and, more importantly, make the electric grid more resilient. When you've got thousands of points of electric power generation with PV on people's roofs and thousands of points of energy storage in people's homes and businesses, uh, the, that really strengthens the resiliency of the electric grid, reduces the kinds of problems that often occur when you see transformers going down. And heck, we had that famous situation a few years back in San Diego where a transformer blew in, I think it was in Yuma, Arizona, and it resulted in a in a uh, cascading sequence, dominoes, if you will, of transformers that blew in for three days in the hottest part of the summer, uh, the, a big part of 
Southern California was without power because of the aging old way that the grid was structured. If, on the other hand, you had thousands of people generating their own power on the roofs with battery storage, there's the possibility that that kind of cascading tripping of transformers shutting down the grid may not have happened. So my, my feeling is that energy storage really is the new horizon in the PV industry. I only hope that we don't see solar photovoltaics pushed to the background as battery systems grow. Uh, that's my fear is that uh, battery systems will grow, but PV may not grow as quickly. And I, I truly believe, particularly in recent years with the uh, evident uh, growth in, in storms, the, the powerful hurricanes, the more frequent powerful hurricanes that we're seeing, that, that we do need to decarbonize our electric power generating infrastructure and and go solar it's i i feel now imperative that we aggressively focus on the growth of pv to get rid of uh, carbon intensive forms of electric power generation yeah, i hear you and certainly storage is ambivalent as a technology or a resource to what the generation technology is so there's there could be a tendency for any type of, of energy, uh, natural gas, coal, et cetera. Or you don't even need any generation. You could just have a battery system and you're, you can charge it from the grid and you can charge it from the grid in the morning when electric rates are cheap and discharge it later in the day under time of use rates when rates are high. If still utilizing at, at, at the aging, the old infrastructure, correct? Precisely, yeah. Well, I can see behind you a bookshelf that indicates that you are quite a reader. I'd love to know if there's a book in particular that you've given away the most is there a book that is uh, kind of stands out for you as one of those one of those books that made a big impact in your world uh what i would say other than what color is my parachute which helped lead me into the pv industry i feel that there's a lot of uh, uh wisdom that's encapsulated in the recommendations of that book although some of the book i kind of find to be a little bit corny uh but but probably the series of books that has really influenced me most in my life is are uh, I, I really like James Michener novels. Uh, Michener, and many people know him because he wrote uh, famous novels such as Centennial or Hawaii. Many of them have been made into movies. But he's got an interesting style where he starts out in the case of Centennial with how the Earth formed, for goodness sakes, you know, and the how the how the crust of the Earth formed and how that area that the book is primarily about that Colorado area, how the geology formed, and and then he introduces the early inhabitants of that area, and then you see the evolution of the civilization that have lived there, that really is fascinating to me to see how humans and human civilizations have evolved and grown. I also read a fascinating book, and my grandfather was really influential in, in getting me interested in Michener. Uh, uh, he, as I was growing up, my grandfather was born in 1898. He was more like my father. And as I was uh, in my later teens and early 20s, he said to me, have you read the source? Have you read the source? And I would always say, no, I haven't, Grandpa. But after he passed away, after he said to me, have you read the source, which is one of Mitchell's most famous novels, I, I picked it up and I read it and I was blown away. It, uh, it's, it's a story about the Middle East, uh, Israel. And what it did was help me get better insight into how human civilizations uh, interact with one another. And, and the Middle East is an interesting part of the world because you have three major civilizations. You have the Europeans from the West, you have the Asians from the Northeast, and you have the Africans from the South. 
this is the crossroads and it's an area of tremendous conflict and his his novels really analyze the source of those conflicts and why humans uh really struggle at times to get along with one another so i i would say that uh in in an overall sense michener novels have probably helped form my appreciation of how the societies around the world interact with one another, the source of conflicts, and, uh, and, and hopefully what humanity can do to try to get along more effectively in the future and not have the level of conflict which has really uh, colored our past. So uh, I, I, I have hopes for the future, quite honestly. I think like most people, I have my fears too, but uh, I, I feel that uh, education in the long run is the most powerful tool that we have available to us to uh, have a better future. And I only hope that uh, here in the United States and around the world, education is giving more prominence in the future than it's been in the past. I love it. I have not read read Michener, and I will certainly be digging into one or more of these novels for sure. Thanks for that recommendation. Jeff, we've talked a lot about some of the ways that folks can can meet you and, and interact with you, certainly by, by way of the Solar Pioneer Party and the upcoming documentary. But if folks wanted to reach out, get more of you, how could they engage with you? Can you give us your Twitter handle, email? How best would folks engage with you? Well, years ago... I was, uh, when, this is after I had left AE Solar, I, I started a consulting and I was trying to think, what's the name of, when should the name of my business be? And I'm firmly of the opinion today that if you're in a solar business, you should avoid names of your company that involve the word solar or sun, because there's just too many of us. But at the time I was thinking, well, you know, should I be like Spies Solar? And I'm like, yeah, that sounds so, ugh. And I was like, what about Solar Spies? And I thought it was great because when you hear my name, you don't realize it's spelled Spies, S-P-I-E-S. But I, I named my consulting business Solar Spies. And all you know, people that don't know me, of course, think it's Solar Spies. And I thought, that's kind of a, a neat name. So uh, uh, so my, my name on uh, Facebook is Jeff Solar Spies. And I guess the funny way I position that is Solar is my middle name. So, uh, <laughs> uh, but my, my Twitter handle is is solar spees and on on linkedin of course i'm just jeff spees so i'm i'm very easy to find and access on linkedin on on facebook under the the name jeff solar spees as well as on twitter under just the handle solar spees and spees being spelled like spies for sure well since we've got an audience here listening how can the suncast audience help you today well, uh, what I would say is you can help me in my mission to make solar the leading form of electric power generation by going out there and spreading the good word in your local community. I, I feel strongly that PV the, is a technology that crosses ideological barriers. It brings people from the left and right together in something they both can believe in. And uh, I, I, I feel that the more photovoltaics we get out there, the better our societies become. So I, I, you can help me by spreading the good word of photovoltaics in your local communities, with your cities, with your states, your, your countries, getting policies that are, that are pro-solar because this is one of the very few technologies that I've ever experienced in my life that is more than 
a way to make a living. It's a way to improve the, the, the communities locally and internationally. So, so please do endorse quality solar policy. And, and, and that's another thing I would advocate is that, uh, uh, the solar industry is incredibly dependent upon uh, regular people speaking up in favor of logical solar policy. So we all need to contribute. I am on the board of the California Solar Energy Industry Association, and I feel strongly that we all need to work together to endorse productive solar policies because we are competing against an incredibly powerful, well-entrenched utility structure that has very little interest in seeing solar grow. Uh, so if we are to succeed as an industry, we are going to need to get the re utility regulators and state and local governments and federal governments to put into place policies that make it feasible for direct ownership of PV and utility scale PV. And many times that's things like renewable portfolio standards that mandate a certain percentage of a state's electric power come from renewable resources. So I, I am not really looking to become enriched by the work that I do. I'm looking to make a contribution to mankind by helping grow photovoltaics, which I think are good for humanity in general. Very good. And I'll, I'll add to that, to, you know, along with getting involved in utility rate structures, one of the organizations uh, being Solar Energy International and the, and the state level solar energy associations, which are not connected, uh, they don't, they don't pay to or, or are connected in any way to see at, at a national level. They do a lion's share of the work of the advocacy right now in, uh, at a state level, make sure these policies are structured well, making sure that we have uh, a, a unified and common voice. So if you aren't currently a member of your local trade organization, whether that be CalSIA or COSIA in Colorado, I don't know what they're called in every state, but look up the local SIA and certainly join the, the national SIA, uh, support the effort to lobby on our behalf as an industry. If you can, register opposition, if you have it, to the Suniva and, and Solar World trade tariffs. Uh, and encourage you from the platform that I have, the only one that I can offer is that we do as an industry stand up to these sort of nonsensical uh, attempts at imposing really costly tariffs to our industry. Well, Jeff, let's end today with a bold prediction. What one thing do you see happening in the market today that perhaps nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? Uh, well, you know, it's interesting. I've spent so much of my last two years with my head down focused on this documentary that I've, I've not looked ahead probably as much as I had in previous years, but, uh, uh, probably the most significant issue that I've got my eyes on as we speak is utility rate structures and how the impl implementation of time of use rates are, are changing the industry. So my, my sense is this. If I were to make a prediction, the future of solar and energy storage is in energy management. Energy management systems, which are still somewhat in their infancy for uh, residential and commercial customers. Commercial, they're a bit more established. But having a computer system that controls which of your electrical appliances and devices use power at what times is going to be fundamentally critical to the future of the uh, electric in the electricity industry. Uh, so what I uh, um, envision 
you know, 10 years maybe down the road is we're going to all have an iPhone application or a, a smartphone application that will give us immediately vis- immediate visibility to what our electric usage in our home is. It will allow you to change the set point of your thermostat. It will allow you to uh, determine what time of the day you can run your electric washer or dryer. It will allow you to determine if your electric stove can be turned on. If your mother-in-law is visiting and she wants to bake a cake during the peak power rates, it may prevent her from doing that unless that cake is critically necessary, at which time she could send you a text message and you could lift the, the restriction. So I feel that energy management is really the key to the future of the PV industry. And sadly, it's not well understood, but I I would recommend that any solar installer that is serious about the solar business or the energy storage or battery business over the next 10 years, you need an information technology professional on staff. You need people that understand computer systems and how to configure these energy management systems to work to reduce the electric rates for the consumer. So I feel that energy management is the core, the key to the future of our industry. That may be the most complete answer anyone's ever given to this question, Jeff. If that, uh, as that comes to pass, we will certainly be exploring how we can take advantage of that opportunity within the solar industry. Jeff Spees of Quick Mount PV and at Solar Spees, so glad to have you on the show today. Thanks for coming, sir. My pleasure, Nico, and and thank you for the work that you're doing, and particularly I appreciate the fact that you're giving recognition to the pioneers of the industry. They need to be recognized now because they're at that age where they're not going to be around much longer, and, and in my opinion, what they've done is on par with the folks that were instrumental in growing the computing industry. They, they should be, they should be uh, thanked for the tremendous contribution that they've made to the world. Thank you for many of the connections you've had a, a hand in helping make. And th- for those who have been listening to the Solar Pioneer series, stay tuned. We do have more coming, some who are still very much active in the industry and others who have, were instrumental in its founding but have moved into a different episode, if you will of their career. So with that, we'll end today's episode and uh, we'll see you back here next week. That's a wrap on today's conversation, Solar Warriors, and you're now well-armed for battle. Hopefully, you'll take away some great tools for your own success. I'd love it if you'd share what you learned or share the episode over on LinkedIn. Let me know what other tools you need. If you want to sharpen the axe a little bit more, I've shared some of the resources we discussed in today's conversation over at mysuncast.com. Just click on the latest episode link in the title bar. Perhaps the best tool in your arsenal might be subscribing to the mailing list while you're there so that you'll get an email from yours truly when new content is available. Have a suggestion for someone you think should join the conversation? Email me, nico at mysuncast.com or shoot me a message on LinkedIn. Hey, that's it. Thanks for being here. Until next time, stay informed, my friend, and stay tuned.